Section 8 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, Italy, 1313 to 1378, Part 2. For seven months the new ruler governed with extraordinary wisdom and success. Peace was restored, exiles recalled, justice dealt out impartially to rich and poor alike. Rome was turned from despair to the height of pride and happiness. The citizens rejoiced in the processions and display by which the tribune impressed the public fancy. The surrounding territory acknowledged the overlordship of the Roman people, and even foreign courts received letters and embassies announcing the establishment of a new power in Italy. Rienzi's mind was full of magnificent ideas which, though ambitious, were not wholly impracticable under existing circumstances. His plan was to summon to the capital a parliament for the whole of Italy, to proclaim the sovereignty of the Roman people, to confer Roman freedom on all Italian citizens, and to found a natural Roman empire under an elected emperor. It was more than merely a fascinating idea. The absence of the Pope, the weakness of the Emperor, and the divisions of Italy offered some real possibilities of success, but for two great obstacles, the character of Rienzi himself and the instability of the Roman people. The Tribune, though a man of wonderful genius, energy, and enthusiasm, was wanting in that steadiness and absolute sanity which are necessary for lasting work. Perhaps there was already a touch of madness in his genius. Perhaps his mind was unhinged by his unprecedented success. Perhaps he was rather too much of an orator, too little of a statesman. It is hard to believe that he was not sincere in his love for Rome and in his enthusiasm for the cause. But it would have been superhuman to have made no mistakes, and his only real strength lay in the support of the populace, a very precarious foundation for permanent power. For some time Rienzi's position seemed secure. The magnificent ceremonies in which he indulged and which have been looked upon as foolish acts of vanity were probably calculated to keep himself before the public notice and to influence a people still rather like children and needing to be impressed by public spectacles. The first festival was for his knighthood, 1st of August, 1347. Clad in white silk embroidered with gold, the handsome tribune passed through the town accompanied by the papal vicar, preceded by a sword-bearer, and with the standard in the rear. In the evening he bathed in the ancient porphyry basin in which tradition said that the emperor Constantine had washed away both his paganism and his leprosy. After a night spent alone in the baptistry, he was solemnly knighted next day by the syndic of the people, who bound round him the girdle of his order and fastened on the spurs of gold. His coronation as tribune, 15th of August, 1347, which followed, was equally magnificent. He received seven crowns to typify the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, and after the ceremony, 
he issued an edict conferring on all Italians the rights of the Roman citizenship, forbidding the entry of armed forces without the consent of Pope and people, and abolishing the names of Guelph and Ghibelline. This happened in August, and in December he was a fugitive. Perhaps Rienzi's most dangerous mistake was his treatment of the nobles. He laid hands on the leaders of the great families at a banquet, and then with mistimed leniency set them free, after a humiliation which such men could never forgive. A force was raised against him by the Colonna, who attacked Rome, and although their defeat was complete, the victor lost many adherents by his triumph and by his undue exultation over the conquered. He fell at last through the desertion of the fickle people, who were annoyed by his taxation and frightened by the papal denunciation of their leader, once the friend of the Pope. Rienzi seems to have suddenly lost heart. Without support he could do nothing, and he could not bear to raise his arms against the people. On the 15th of December, 1347, he abdicated with a suddenness which surprised friends and foes alike. Papal authority and aristocratic rule were restored on the instant, and with them the state of anarchy and disunion from which the tribune had temporarily saved the city. Rienzi was not destined to remain forever in obscurity. He is said to have spent the time of his absence amongst the Fraticelli, hermits dwelling in the mountains of the Abruzzi, who passed their lives in penitence and asceticism. Here tradition relates that he received a divine message through one of the brethren, urging him to take up public life once more and fetch the emperor to Rome, since by this means alone could his imperial dreams be realized. Undeterred by personal danger, Rienzi traveled to Prague, 1350, the residence of Charles IV, who had succeeded Louis the Bavarian. Here he unfolded his schemes with something of his old eloquence, but with a strain of mysticism and wildness which point to his mind being unhinged by his recent life of solitude. Charles IV was the last man to be stirred by visions of universal empire and Italian regeneration. After keeping the ex-tribune sometime a prisoner in Bohemia, he sent him to Avignon to defend his Catholic orthodoxy and loyalty before Pope and Cardinals. He was again imprisoned by Clement VI, but Innocent VI, who succeeded, thought to make use of his illustrious captive to quell the disturbances which were threatening the total destruction of the capital of the world. Ever since Rienzi's fall, Rome had been going from bad to worse. Innocence the sixth had entrusted the rule to two senators, an Orsini and a Colonna, but their unpopularity was increased by a famine which the populace believed to be the result of governmental regulations concerning the sale of corn. One senator, Bertolt Orsini, faced the mob and was literally buried under the heap of stones which were flung at him. Successors were appointed, but order was difficult to restore. In 1353, Innocent commissioned Cardinal Albernos, a Spanish prelate, both warrior and statesman, to do what he could, and with him sent the ex-tribune that his knowledge of Rome and the Romans might be turned to account. The return of Rienzi, 1354, was a veritable triumph. 
the people remembered his past greatness and welcomed him as a deliverer. As papal senator he ruled with much of his old power and for a short time with extraordinary success. But Cola's position between pope and people was totally insecure. He had little real authority and no money. It was his attempts to get money rather than the severity of his rule which brought about his final downfall. In the popular revolt which overthrew him, the cry was, Death to the traitor who has imposed the taxes, and this was the real cause of his ruin. The mob surrounded his palace and shouted him down when he stood forth on the balcony to address them. Had he been allowed to speak, he might still have won them over, says the chronicler, with unbounded confidence in the eloquence of the tribune. But he could not speak. He could only unfurl the Roman banner and point silently to the golden letters Senatus Papalusque Romanus. Stones were flung at him, and wounded in the head he left the balcony, only to find the palace in flames behind him. Determined to make one more bid for life, Rienzi hastily disguised himself as a peasant, escaping with plunder. Recognized as he was passing the last gate, he was seized and led back to the steps of the palace, whence he had so often pronounced condemnation upon his enemies. In silence he faced the mob, his arms crossed on his breast. None ventured to touch the man who had done so much for Rome, and silence gradually fell on the turbulent throng. It was only when he opened his lips to address the speechless crowd that a citizen, fearing his eloquence, thrust his sword through the tribune's body. The spell was broken. Others stabbed and mangled the helpless corpse and dragged it from the capital. For two days it hung from a house in the Colonna quarter, an appalling spectacle. Then, by the command of the Colonna, the body was burnt by the Jews of the city, and the ashes scattered abroad, that no relic might be left of the last of the tribunes. Rienzi had done much and dreamed more, but the promise and glory of his early days were tarnished at the last by a violence and want of balance which seemed to betoken a mind unhinged by visionary imaginings and by sudden reversals of fortune sufficient to affect the strongest brain. The feeling was more and more gaining ground that the only thing necessary was the return of the popes. Their lengthy absence had alienated the majority of Italians and weakened papal authority to an unprecedented extent. The Duke of Milan cared so little for a bull of excommunication that he forced the unlucky legate who brought it to eat the parchment and the leaden seal. Fervent Catholics longed for the revival of reverent feelings toward a true head of the Church. Supporters of order hoped that papal influence might be exerted in that direction. The popes themselves felt that residence at Rome was the only hope of maintaining their secular authority. One of the most active advocates of papal return was St. Catherine of Siena. This remarkable personality was one of the few instances of a saint who led an active public life, and of a woman of the people who took part in politics and swayed nobles and rulers by her influence. Born of humble parents in Siena, Catherine as a child began to see visions and dream dreams. 
when still very young she resisted the attempts of her father and mother to arrange a marriage for her and made them believe in her divine call without leaving her home she gave herself up to a life of the greatest strictness and self-discipline she spent more than half the night in prayer and the rest on a bed of hard planks her days were given up to work amongst the poor and to religious exercises during the second epidemic of plague she labored incessantly for the relief of the sufferers with an utter disregard for her own safety which doubtless helped her to escape the malady despite her humble life and apparent lack of education she came to know many of the chief people of the time and took the greatest interest in public events the misfortunes of italy filled her with grief and determination to do all in her power to alleviate them at one time she had great hopes of a european crusade and wrote to the captains of condottieri urging their participation and blaming the evil of their lives she even ventured to reprove bernabo visconti for the wickedness of his ways and his opposition to the church when florence revolted against the pope and was punished by excommunication st catherine hastened to the city and opened negotiations with the leaders of the republic and it was on a mission of pacification on their behalf that she first journeyed to avignon it is wonderful to read of the influence exerted by this fragile being still little more than a girl who came from such humble surroundings to speak authoritatively to popes and rulers gregory the eleventh was much impressed by her speech and held many interviews with her but he was a weak irresolute man very reluctant to leave the luxury and peace of avignon for the turmoils and discomforts of life in rome in the end however st catherine and his conscience aided no doubt by the fear of losing his italian possessions forever prevailed to induce gregory to undertake the journey he re-entered his capital thirteen seventy eight amidst much outward rejoicing which however meant very little real support probably gregory would never have stuck to the post of danger but his sudden death ended his indecision the conclave summoned to meet for the election of a successor thirteen seventy eight was invaded by the mob which broke through all barriers and noisily demanded a roman as pope urban the sixth who eventually was chosen was indeed an italian but little fitted by his proud and passionate character to rule in a time of such great difficulty st catherine's last days were spent in a brave endeavour to quiet the revolts against urban in rome and to pacify the disordered city these efforts were too much for the little strength her life of exertion and asceticism had left her a fall in church probably caused by a fainting fit gave her some internal injury from which she never recovered and she died at rome in thirteen seventy eight amidst universal sorrow she had only reached the age of thirty-one her death saved her from seeing the still greater degradation which was to be brought upon the papacy by the long schism she could yet hope for the success of urban over his rival clement the seventh thirteen seventy eight who had been elected shortly after the roman pontiff by a section of the cardinals and who was holding out in naples supported by the queen 
The 14th century was without doubt a period of great storm and stress throughout Italy. In the south, Naples, whose King Robert during the earlier part of the century had played so leading a part in general affairs, had been plunged at his death, 1343, into a dynastic struggle. This kept her fully occupied at home and led to important results in the future. The first house of Anjou had split into two branches, the elder branch in Hungary, the younger in Naples. When Robert of Naples died, his granddaughter Joanna, who succeeded him, 1343 to 1382, had married a prince of the Hungarian house named Andrew, a younger brother of Louis the Great, King of Hungary. This Andrew did not appreciate the position of king consort, but desired to rule in his own right as representative of the elder line. Such claims were not likely to lead to harmony between the married pair, who were only sixteen years of age, and who were each flattered and urged on by rival parties. Queen Joanna, beautiful and uncontrolled, was in love with her cousin, Louis of Taranto, and cared nothing for the husband to whom she had been married for purely political reasons. A conspiracy was formed against Andrew. Whether his wife was privy to it or not is still uncertain, although the case against her looks suspiciously black. He was awakened one night on pretense of important news and fallen upon by his enemies who strangled him with a silken cord since there was a tradition current that he was protected by a charm from poison or from steel. The actual murderers were executed with horrific tortures by officials of the Pope, but public rumor pointed at the Queen as the true author of the deed. Her marriage with Louis of Taranto, an open instigator of the crime, gave color to this accusation. The King of Hungary, furious at his brother's death, prepared to invade Naples with great force, 1347. Joanna lost heart and fled with her second husband to Provence, leaving most of her nobles to submit to the invader, who occupied the kingdom without a blow. This new rule, however, did not long prevail in Naples. Louis of Hungary could hardly govern the affairs of two states so widely separated, and was glad in the end to resign the Italian province to the queen, 1351, after a papal court had pronounced her innocent of the death of Andrew. This ended Neapolitan difficulties for the moment, but Joanna, though she had four husbands, had no children, and as time went on the succession question became acute. The queen's probable heir was Charles of Durazzo, a husband of her niece and himself a distant relation, but when rival popes were elected in 1378, great discord arose between them, for whilst Joanna favored the French candidate, Clement VII, Charles was an ardent supporter of Urban VI. Joanna hated opposition and was eager for French support, for which reasons she turned to the House of Anjou in France and declared Louis, its representative, as her heir. War broke out in the course of which Joanna was captured, and as punishment for her crime, real or supposed, suffocated under a feather bed, 1382, by orders of the old King of Hungary. Her death left Charles of Durazzo victorious for the time being, and he was crowned king as Charles III. The claims of Anjou, however, were not forgotten, 
and are important as forming a pretext for the invasion of Italy by Charles VIII of France at the close of the 15th century. Venice, during the 14th century, was gradually emerging from her position of isolation and independence, and becoming more involved in Italian politics as she enlarged her territories on the mainland. At the beginning of this period, as has already been noticed, Venice was scarcely part of Italy, had no mainland territory, and had turned all her strength and all her interest to maritime and commercial matters, with the result that she surpassed all rivals in naval skill and enterprise, that her eminence as a trading power was universally recognized, and that her wealth was unequaled and of worldwide renown. Petrarch writes of her ships, They carry wine to England, honey to the Scythians, saffron oil, linen to Assyria, Armenia, Persia, and Arabia, wood to Egypt and Greece. They return laden with various merchandise which is distributed all over Europe. Not only did the city enrich herself with trading beyond the seas, she sent goods also to Italian and German cities, and her own industries, especially glass-making, copper and iron-working, and bell-founding, were prosperously carried on. Her government, though oligarchical and despotic, was strong and orderly. It was rich with the profits of trading dues, salt monopoly, and profits of banking, and ready to look after the welfare of the city in a paternal spirit, not wholly unsuccessful. Thus Venice, at the opening of the fourteenth century, was rich, powerful, and prosperous, but already there were signs of rocks ahead. Trade in the east was bringing her into conflict with the rising power of Genoa. Her new idea of extending towards the west and acquiring Italian lands could not fail to arouse the antagonism of the great families by which northern Italy was increasingly dominated. The first enemy of importance whom Venice had to face was the great lord of Verona, Mastino della Scala. The extension of his dominion in the north and his policy of imposing custom duties on her goods alarmed the city, which was dependent on the mainland for her food supply and dreaded to be cut off from some of her most useful stores. In the war which followed, Venice won over the Carrara, lords of Padua, to her side began her career of expansion by the acquirement of Treviso and its district, and assisted in overthrowing the supremacy of the Scala family in Verona. Another enemy, who a little later disturbed Venetian tranquillity, was Louis of Hungary, jealous of the territory which the city had acquired in Dalmatia. Venice was not able to get so successfully out of this war, 1355, in which for the time she lost land and prestige. Other difficulties which hampered Venice during this century came from plague and internal troubles. In 1348 she suffered so terribly from the Black Death that more than half the population are said to have perished. The town passed through a ghastly period. Death boats passed along the canals. The dead bodies were flung from the windows of the neighboring houses and were buried together without distinction in a common grave. In no place in Italy was the mortality greater. Troubles also arose from antagonism to the government and vain attempts to shake the despotism of the Council of Ten. The most famous of these attempts was headed by the Doge himself, Marine Fallier, 1354 to 1355, 
who wished to destroy the aristocracy of the city and make himself uncontrolled ruler. The plot was discovered through the tender-heartedness of one of the conspirators, anxious to save a friend from the coming destruction. Vengeance was prompt and impartial. Ten of the leaders of the conspiracy were hanged, and the doge himself, whose complicity was discovered, was deprived of his ducal cap and executed. His head was struck off at the top of the marble staircase where he and his predecessors, on entering into office, had taken their oaths of fidelity to the Republic. This act of justice placed beyond question the authority of the famous Council of Ten. In addition to these difficulties, Venice had to face Genoa, her most dangerous enemy. Genoa certainly was no despicable rival. She had a strong maritime position on the mainland, which was strengthened by her occupation of Corsica, and she was guarded by mountains on the north from inroads of enemies from Italy, whilst her profitable trade in the Black Sea was sufficient to rouse great jealousy in the heart of the other competitor for commerce in the east. On the other hand, she had endless troubles from internal factions and family disputes, the Visconti in Milan were incessantly threatening her independence, and her government was less united and strong than that of Venice. Nevertheless, Genoa reaped most advantage from the first war with her rival, which arose from quarrels in the Black Sea, 1350 to 1355. She won a great naval victory off the island of Sapienza in 1354, and Venice, disheartened by the conspiracy of Marin Fallier at home, concluded peace and gave up her demands. This great defeat of the Venetian fleet is said to have been presaged by all sorts of portents. Crows had fought in the rigging of the vessels before the combat and plucked each other to death. Enormous and unknown fish had swum around the ships and swallowed seamen whole, till the crews were filled with terror. Such tales show the extent of the calamity from the horror which it excited at the time. The next struggle between Venice and Genoa has gained the name of the War of Chioggia, 1378-1382, from the important events which happened round that town, a place commanding one end of the waterway leading from the lagoons of Venice to the open sea. The Genoese fleet captured this strong position and Venice trembled for her own safety. The honor of her rescue rests with two great Venetian seamen, Victor Pisani and Carlo Zeno, and with the doge himself, Andrea Contarini. At the time when Chioggia fell, Pisani was in prison, suffering punishment for a recent defeat which had been in no way his fault. The people, panic-stricken, rioted in the streets. If you wish us to fight, they cried, give us back our admiral, Victor Pisani, long live Victor Pisani. The government listened to their demands, and Pisani was put in command. Every Venetian vessel available was manned, and the Genoese fleet was driven back down the narrow waterway to Chioggia, where escape had been prevented by blocking the outlet to the open sea. Further measures, however, were difficult, for the greater number of the ships of Venice were away in the east under Carlo Zeno, and to retake Chioggia without them was an impossible task. Urgent messages were dispatched, and the doge was obliged to say that unless help came by the new year he would raise the siege. On the very day fixed for the surrender, Carlo Zeno and the hoped-for armament returned, laden with provisions, and the blockade was continued. At length, 
the combined effort of Pisani and Zeno was successful, and the whole Genoese fleet was forced to surrender for lack of supplies. The following year, peace was concluded at Turin, 1381. Venice had saved her own existence, but had not been exactly successful. She had given up Dalmatia, the island of Tenidos, and almost all the possessions she had laboriously acquired on the mainland. Despite these losses, however, the really important question had been settled to the advantage of Venice. The naval power of Genoa had received a blow from which it never recovered, and her rival was free from danger in that quarter. Internal troubles undermined the little remaining strength of the Genoese, and at the close of the century France undertook to govern the once proud republic. Venice, on the other hand, recovered from her exertions in a surprisingly short time, and her trade became more flourishing than ever. In the following period, however, her ambition was increasingly turned toward territorial expansion, to winning back and adding to her possessions on the mainland. Her later history is chiefly concerned with the new difficulties which such a policy could not fail to bring upon her. End of Section 8